You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Richard Hua, who is the worldwide head of Epic Leadership and Chief EQ Evangelist at Amazon. He has a highly refined ability to synthesize information and communicate insight and solutions. Utilize this skill to earn a perfect score of 1600 on the SATs. He earned his Bachelor's of Science with honors in electrical engineering and computer science from University of California, Berkeley. And now he is at Amazon, where he's the founder of the Amazon Culture and Innovation Program in San Francisco Bay Area. He regularly presents innovation briefings to senior executives of the world's largest corporations. On today's show, we talk about what are the four pillars of innovation. We dive into what is the Amazon six-pager and how it is used to propose a new idea. What is day one of the internet and how should someone train their mind to make it through tough times? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. So let's begin. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Rich, I'm super excited about today's episode. You're introduced by Sam Wong, who's been actually on the show multiple times. He's one of our audience's favorites. He's given such amazing advice. You're going to have to give us at least that caliber. So nothing to live up for. Don't be nervous at all. But no, with your background, I've done a ton of research before this episode. It's spectacular. But for our audience, can you give them a little bit of background of your career up until this point? Sure. First of all, it's great to be on this show with you, Sean. So my name is Rich Hua, and I currently serve as the worldwide head of Epic Leadership at Amazon. I'm also an innovation evangelist. And uh, those are some interesting, fancy terms. I will tell you a little more about what they actually mean in the days, to, uh, in, in sort of the, the, the moments to come here. But my career journey is actually really interesting. Uh, certainly now I work at Amazon, high tech company. I've been in business development and sales for the last 10 years. Uh, but before that, I actually spent 23 years as an evangelist and a minister and a missionary. So I actually served for three years in the Philippines and then here in the Bay Area for another 20 years essentially giving talks and giving speeches and counseling and helping people with their spiritual and emotional lives to help them be happier and have more successful relationships and just succeed in life. Did that for, like I said, about 23 years. And then about 10 years ago, I made a big pivot back into the corporate world. And it's really a fascinating story. I basically decided that I wanted to be a sales engineer because I have an engineering background from Cal. And I also enjoy talking to people and sales. And so I had basically this amount of experience in sales engineering, literally zero. But a friend of mine introduced me to a hiring manager at Oracle. And he told the hiring manager, you need to talk to my friend, Rich. He's really smart. I think he'd be great. And the hiring manager said, oh, great. What's he been doing? What experiences does he have? And my friend basically said, don't worry about it. Just talk to him. I think you'll really like him. So anyway, I talked to the guy on the phone and he basically said, okay, here's the role. Are you interested? I said, sure. And he goes, what have you been doing? I said, well, I've been an evangelist and minister for the last 23 years. Silence for literally 30 seconds. After he gathered himself, I don't know if he's laughing or coughing or something. He said, oh, okay. I'll tell you what, as a favor to my friend, I will give you an interview online over WebEx. This is before the pandemic. So he was clearly just trying to give me a little time and get me out of the way. I still like how valuable that friend introduction <laughs> It was. But so what happened was I sent him my resume and he saw that I had actually gotten a degree in electrical engineering and computer science from Berkeley, that I got a perfect score on the SAT. And he thought, you know, maybe I should give this guy a little bit of a chance. So 
He brought me into the interview and I prepared like a mad dog. I had to basically give a presentation on this technology I'd never heard of before called Real Application Clusters. I had no idea. I couldn't even spell it, but I learned about it in a week, delivered a presentation, practiced with a bunch of friends who knew better than I did. I killed it and they offered me a job on the spot. So that was my career in tech. I'm super grateful for Ali Niazi, actually, that's his name. He offered me a job. And I did that for a few years, became a manager very quickly because I had a lot of leadership experience. And then after four years of that, I moved to AWS and started in sales and did business development. And now I'm in the role I'm at now. So it's been an orthogonal, non-traditional path for sure. We got to go over this career path. (laughs) And first off, I'm not sure if anyone else caught it, but I definitely, it piqued my interest when you said perfect score on your SATs. Yeah, I did. Was it one of those things where you studied for years for it or you just, I'm taking this and oh, I passed it at perfect score? Yeah, it was not by accident. I actually studied really hard for it. I'm above average smart, but I'm not a genius by any stretch. But I worked really, really hard and I was super determined. And so I took a lot of practice tests and I basically memorized the 5,000 most commonly found words in the SAT, all of their definitions. And so when I took it, It actually felt easy and uh, I didn't think I missed anything, but I was a little unsure about a couple of questions. So I was pleasantly surprised when I actually got a perfect score. And what's interesting is I really focus on my cognitive side and I really highly developed that. But the reality is I found that only gets you so far and that the emotional intelligence side was the part that was going to actually take me even farther. And I will say my IQ got Ali to give me an interview but it was my EQ that actually helped me get the job and then very quickly become a manager. And so I'll tell more about that also as we talk. Okay, so going back, electrical engineer, computer science, UC Berkeley. Yes. Pretty impressive right there. Then after corporate world, then going in the evangelic route, was it something that happened in the corporate world or was it just didn't feel like the right place for you. Why go there and then that other transition? Yes. When I had my, when I was getting my degree at Berkeley, I essentially had an epiphany, a spiritual transformation, if you will. And I thought, you know, I love technology. I love engineering, but I really would rather work with people. I feel like it's more satisfying and meaningful. So actually right out of college, I moved to the Philippines and became a missionary. I directly took my degree I graduated on March 25th on a, a basically a Saturday. And then I got married on March 26th, which was a Sunday. And then two weeks later, we, my wife and I were living in the Philippines as missionaries. And, okay. Uh, I was worried that you met the person in the Philippines <laughs> and it was on arrival. And then two days later. No, not quite like that. I'd known her for about a year and a half, but we got married and we both had a passion to be able to help people. So we basically, it was a grand adventure. It was marriage and missionary work all at the same time. So it was uh, really quite exciting. Okay. But 23 years, wouldn't, don't most people get burnt out after a year or two? How'd you last that long? Yeah. A lot of it was the meaningfulness of the work. The research has actually found that people don't get burned out because it's hard. People don't get burned out because it's tiring. There are a lot of jobs that are like that. People get burned out because they're failing to connect the meaningfulness and joy of what they're doing with all the hard work. And so a lot of people do is they try to reduce the amount of work, which is one strategy, but increasing the meaning is actually a more powerful strategy. So it's very meaningful for us. We loved it. We enjoyed it. Just seeing people's lives change, marriages repaired, estranged family members get reconnected, just amazingly meaningful. So the reason we actually stepped out of the ministry is because my wife's health actually took a turn for the worse. 
it's just some strange things going on that we needed to take some time to figure out. And we, we felt like we couldn't really continue doing that full time. So we made a pivot into the corporate world, but we still are very active in our church and our faith and things like that. So it's still a great passion, improving the lives of other people. We're just doing it in a different format. Okay. And then from there to Amazon, how did you make that transition? Yes, I basically hopped from being a minister to Oracle. And then I, after four years of that, I moved to Amazon. Now, what's interesting is I got hired as a basically sales engineer at Oracle. And I did that for two years. And one thing I realized as I was there was these people are really smart. Like technology-wise, they could run rings around me because I had not really been doing that for decades. And so I tried to take a humble approach and learn as much as I could from them. But I also saw that there was a gap where their interpersonal skills, their communication skills, their ability to have empathy for people around them could use some improvement. So I started basically delivering trainings to help them improve their ability to ask questions, understand what people are thinking and feeling, work with their colleagues, be better at their job from what some people would call the soft skills perspective, but we all know soft skills are actually hard to do. And so I really helped improve and elevate the performance and skill set of my colleagues. So two years into that, an open position came up to be a manager. And so it was somebody had been there for 10 years. Another person had been there for 12 years. They were both principals. I was a senior, which was one level below them, but I got the job. And it was because the vice president told me, you know, you're already trying to actually help people develop. And that's the kind of manager I want. You already are trying to actually help people in their emotional side and communication side and the side that we actually need development in. So you're the person I actually want to lead this team because I believe you'll actually help elevate them. And so I, I was very fortunate. But again, it was those EQ skills and that sense of being a giver that actually made a difference. And I've had that attitude the whole time. And so got any many sort of opportunities, promotions, and even the role that I have now because of that mindset. All these opportunities, how much of it do you think came about from going beyond what your job role was to add an additional value? You just mentioned you're helping all your employees. That was on your own time, wasn't it? Or additional to your nine to probably nine work schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it was because of that. And I have some fundamental concepts that I think about when I think about career success, success in life in general. One of them is being a giver. Right. Adam Grant, a really well-known Wharton psychologist, uh, he talks. He wrote a book called Give and Take. And it's beautiful because he did a lot of research. And he found that there are essentially three categories of people when it comes to that. There's givers, there's takers, and there's matchers. Most people professionally are matchers, right? Quid pro quo, you give to me, I'll give to you, let's keep it even. But he found that the most successful people in life and in professionally, the professional life, were givers. And also the least successful people are givers. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I really believed in that. And I thought, if I can just be a giver, give more than I take, I believe that I'll help other people succeed. And that will be the thing that actually helps me succeed. Now, a little cop, the giving has to be strategic, meaning you can't give so much that you start impacting yourself in a negative way, because then you're basically depleting your own abilities. And so you can't just, for instance, if you're a taker, I'm not just going to keep giving to you. I have to say no at some point. I have to be thoughtful, a wise giver, so to speak. But then the other thing, I read Seth Godin's book called Lynchpin. And as the name implies, I could summarize it in one sentence, figure out where you can provide a unique and lasting value with the talents and skills and passions you have in your organization. And then basically give 100% to that. 
And so I really believe in that, right? Finding the gap, finding where you can actually use your unique skill set to give and help others is something that makes you incredibly uniquely valuable. And so when I went to Oracle, I looked around and said, my unique value is definitely not my technology knowledge because I'm like way below everyone else due to experience. My unique value is in this whole other realm that they don't pay as much attention to, which is the people interpersonal skills. That's what I've been doing for two decades. So that's how I can be a linchpin in the organization. And the same has happened at AWS, public speaking, talking about emotional intelligence, leadership development. These are all areas I found gaps where I could really go in and add some unique and outsized value. And let's talk about that. So Oracle, then Amazon. Why leave Oracle? Why not stay there for 20, 30 years? Most people, not most, but some people in those companies, they last a long time in that pathway. Yeah. I will say this. First of all, I was super grateful for the opportunity that somebody took a chance on me and actually hired me. Just really, if you can look at it from an external perspective, we're going to hire this minister as a pre-sales engineer, and actually not just entry level, but a senior pre-sales engineer because he's, he's got all this experience. So I'm super grateful to Ali, Kwesi, and Mary. They're the three people on my interview panel. And they offered me a job on the spot. So I was very, very grateful for that. And my colleagues were amazing. I learned a ton. Oracle known as a great place to learn, to develop skill. You go in there and the number one thing you really want to do is learn and cut your teeth. Amazing. Long term, there are just some things I didn't feel like was a good fit. I actually wanted to be able to serve our customers in a deeper way. I wanted to be able to work in some more advanced technologies and And I also wanted more opportunities to grow my broader understanding of sort of the technical landscape that I feel like wasn't necessarily there. So when I got the opportunity to go to AWS, I jumped at it. And it's interesting because I think most people know that Oracle does not necessarily have the greatest reputation for serving their customers, even though I definitely try to do that. But the audits and other sort of things can be a little bit not so customer centric. And so moving to AWS, which was incredibly customer centric, was really quite... I do remember there would be people from Oracle who would call customers. And unfortunately, what happened is they just got audited. So they would basically just start swearing at the person, just call them and say all sorts of words I cannot repeat on this podcast. And then you go to AWS and you call customers and they're like, oh my goodness, thank you so much for calling me. I had no idea I even had an account manager. Let me tell you about everything I'm doing night and day, right? And that's the result of being very customer centric versus maybe not so much. The response is really amazing. <laughs> How can other companies learn from that about being customer focused instead of being business competitors? Yeah, that leads me to actually one fundamental philosophy that Amazon has. I have the privilege of a culture of innovation ambassador, which means I deliver talks to senior leaders from all over the world about Amazon's innovation culture. And so a very fundamental thing we believe is that innovation should begin with a customer and we work backwards from that. We think about what customers need, what customers want, what the challenges are, what can we solve, and then that's what drives our innovation. And the advantage of that is that customers are always wonderfully, beautifully dissatisfied, right? Think about anybody who's given their kids or their nieces or their nephews a Christmas present. It is now the first part of the next year. Very unlikely they're still super thrilled with that present a few months later. They're wonderfully dissatisfied. And customers are that way as well. So when you're competitor focused or your business paradigm focused or technology focused or or whatever, 
you don't really always have to change. If you're a competitor focus, you're beating a competitor, they don't do anything different. Well, you don't have to either. Really, there's not a whole lot of motivation. But when you're focused on your customer, there's always a reason to change because they're not going to be happy today with what you gave them yesterday or the month before. And so there's this natural built-in driver to be innovative. And that's essentially what's happened for Amazon over the last 27 years because we're paying so much attention to our customers and we're trying to be empathetic for them and invent on their behalf. Those things have really driven an intense level of innovation that continues to go forward even today. While doing some research for this podcast, I saw a presentation that you gave where you mentioned day one of the internet. Can you tell us what day one, what that actually means? Yes. So day one is a phrase from Jeff Bezos's very first shareholder letter, right? Back in the late 90s. And he basically said in the first sentence of the second paragraph, this is day one for the internet. And that day one mentality is something that we've continued to drive to have in Amazon. It's this idea that we're always evolving. We're always growing. We're always learning. We've never arrived. You get the idea. It's you're constantly moving forward and trying to invent and improve. Carol Dweck obviously has done some great research at Stanford on the growth mindset. It's this idea that I'm always growing. I'm never done versus a fixed mindset. And so we really try to keep that as part of our culture. It's easier to do when you have 20, 200, 2,000 people. Now with 1.6 million, a little more difficult, but we really want to keep that. Now, somebody asked Jeff a little while back, hey, what does day two look like? And he sat there and he said, day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death. And that's why it's always day one. And of course, I think he got a standing ovation for that one. He didn't pull that out of his pocket, probably thought about that one. But that's the truth, right? Think about day one companies versus day two companies. Look around and pretty quickly ascertain which is which, right? Day two companies really don't have a whole lot of new innovation. They're just trying to milk more revenue from their current customers. Any new innovation is through acquisition. You don't really look at them and go, oh, they're this company that's created X, Y, or Z, creating more value, right, for the world at large or the industry. And they may be around for decades, but they are on a decline and die they will because they're increasingly irrelevant. And so we don't want to ever be a day two company. Now, the reality is there's no guarantee. And so we're actually a little paranoid about that. We really do not want to be that because so many other companies have done that. So we really want to strive to be day one in our mentality and in our culture for as long as we possibly can. And Amazon has this, at least when I picture Amazon, I picture always innovated. Innovation over just constantly creating. The four pillars of innovation at Amazon, what are they? How can other companies learn from them? Can you give us a little bit of description background? Yeah, sure. And this is something I talk to leaders about. And it's called our sort of unique, even maybe peculiar culture of innovation. And the first thing I'll say is that this is our particular culture. So it's not necessarily for everyone. It's not the only one that works. There are plenty of other great, amazing cultures out there that are very innovative. But this is our particular brand of it. So there are four pillars. The first is essentially sort of people. We just call that the actual cultural component. It's the people we hire. It's the kind of people we expect to have at Amazon. And that's based on our leadership principles. You can look it up on the internet. There's 16 of them, but it really all begins with customer obsession. And then things like insist on the highest standards, 
earn trust, and then you deliver results. And so there's that sort of idea we really want a certain kind of person to work there. And it's a high-performing person who actually really cares about customers and are willing to do things on their behalf. Uh, the second pillar is mechanisms. And those are essentially encoded behaviors. Some might call them business processes, but we call them mechanisms because essentially it's this idea of you take certain inputs and you create tools so that you can nudge people and move people towards those particular inputs. And then you continuously evaluate its efficacy and then you iterate, right? So it's always getting better and better, producing better and better outputs. Our most famous mechanism is what we call the working backward process. And essentially, that's how we launch anything. We write a six-page narrative. It has a press release that's part of it. It's got a frequently asked questions. And we do that before we start anything. Now, obviously, most people write a press release at the end. Once it's ready to go out to the public, we write at the very beginning. And the goal of that is to have empathy for our customers and really think, what are we trying to accomplish? What is the benefit? Right? Is that really clear? How do we even know that they need or want these things? So that mechanism is really powerful. It's called the working backwards one or the PRFAQ, press release frequently asked questions. Who's writing that? Is it the management? Is it the engineers? Is it everyone? Yeah. So let me pull on that thread a little bit. Anybody can write one at any time. So we, it's a mechanism because it's an established way of being able to do something. Right. And in this case, the do something is launch a new product or launch a new business line or start anything. And so, yeah, anybody can write one anytime. Uh, there's a great example of a basically a, a, an engineering manager about years ago in San Diego basically thought, we're not really serving our population in San Diego because we don't have actually a big office here. The closest one was LA. And so he wrote a six page narrative and he floated up to the right person and he said, hey, I think we should open an office. And the vice president said, yes, let's do it. And he became the general manager of our Amazon office. So anybody anywhere can do these things. Now, you have to work really hard at it. You have to put a lot of data, a lot of work, a lot of effort. You iterate over and over again, and then you present it to some senior leader who has the funding for it. But that is actually our mechanism for being able to launch new things. And I did that myself to launch the Epic Leadership Program, which I'll talk about where we get there, but went through that exact same process. People said, yes, thumbs up. Here's your headcount. Hire a team. Let's get going. You make it sound so easy. Is this something that <laughs> just happened after hours or is this six month process, one year process? Yeah. So it is definitely an involved process. It is simple, but it's definitely not easy. It's simple in that you write the document, you bring it to the right people, you, you basically all read it. And then you basically give the thumbs up, thumbs down, or bring back a better version. But to get there, it is a multi-month process because what you need to do is you need to really dive deep into answering the questions. There's some fundamental ones like who is the customer? What is the customer problem or opportunity? How do you know what data points do you actually have that the customer actually wants or needs these things? Right? What is the customer experience actually going to be like? So all these things have to be answered. And most people write this document, rewrite it about 30 or 40 times before they feel like they're confident enough to be able to bring it to, say, some senior leadership person or Andy Jassy or Jeff Bezos or some VP who can fund it. Right? So it's a multi-month process for sure. And one thing I will, will say is that it's a little peculiar because most people, when they make proposals, they want to launch something, they use PowerPoints, right? I'm going to gesticulate and convince you to do this. 
we actually are doing the exact sort of opposite of that. We want ideas to stand on their own merit. We want it to be well thought out and researched. And we believe that writing clarifies thinking. PowerPoints definitely do not clarify your thinking. If anything, it probably goes in the opposite direction. And so when you're forced to sit there and write in words and in paragraphs, it forces you to think, what am I really trying to say? What are the most important things? And who am I actually trying to serve? And so that, that sort of process of doing it actually increases the quality of the ideas. And then famously, um, what you do is you go to a meeting, you sit around a table, you hand out physical copies of your document. Now, and this during COVID, obviously, it's online. But everyone is silently reading it for 20 minutes with a red marker in their hand and basically marking it up and making comments. So no one gets to say anything. And it's really beautiful because everyone basically has to take in all of the information, sort of process it a bit, think about it, and then you start a vivacious conversation about it. And so you don't get to convince people with your charisma or lack thereof. You don't get interrupted while doing a PowerPoint, which many senior leaders tend to do that while you're talking. And also people who may be more introverted need a little more extra time to think about what they're going to say, have equal footing with the maybe more extroverted people because everyone's expected to jump in and make sure that the quality of the idea is a good one. And so it's a really beautiful way. A lot of other companies have actually adopted this a methodology for launching their products, right? Like one of the senior executives at Autodesk actually came to one of our seminars, learned about it. He's like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. I'm going to do this over here. And if you're getting that many senior people around a room, having them spend 20 minutes reading it and then their questions, that's a lot of people's time. I'm guessing you're only getting get these proposals once or twice a quarter or something. I'm guessing it's not that frequent. In my head, originally, it was like every day someone's submitting something. That's actually closer to the truth, Sean. So senior leaders like Jeff and Andy and Adam over at AWS or vice presidents, they expect a certain number of these every week. So that is actually what they do. That is their job. One of the things that Jeff has said is that when you become a senior leader, your most important job is to make high quality decisions. So if you can make three high quality decisions a day, you've done a pretty darn good job because every decision has a massive outsized impact on the business, right? Not supposed to be in the weeds and all that kind of thing. You, you go into the weeds in as much as you need to get the data, but then you have to be able to make those really sized impact decisions. Senior leaders actually expect a certain number all the time and they'd be disappointed if they weren't getting lots and lots of them on a weekly basis. So that is actually how we communicate, lots of writing. So if anybody's thinking about getting a job at Amazon, just prepare to write. There's a lot of writing. So if you really hated writing essays in college and all that, I'm sorry, I just got to, that this is how we operate. And there's cons to it, but I think a lot more pros to that. All right. So Grammarly is sponsoring this episode. <laughs> just letting everyone else know that. <laughs> That's funny. Innovation company, one-way door two-way door. What about an Amazon? What does that mean? Let me finish answering the question from previous because I realized I didn't. So the four pillars are the culture, the people, the mechanisms, which we just talked about. The third one is technology architecture, which is obviously every company today is a technology company. You have to have that to undergird whatever you're trying to build, especially if you're trying to scale it right? nationally, globally. And then the fourth is organization right? How you assemble your teams, allowing them to be agile, allowing them to own what they build with this famous concept of two pizza teams. So engineering teams should really be only as large as can be fed by two large pizzas, which is about 10 people. Because we found really through a lot of research that when you go above that number, you tend to have diminishing returns. 
the cost of communication and integration and alignment becomes really a lot higher than just the value that an additional person would bring. So we really try to have these small, agile teams. I'm impressed you feed 10 people with two large pizzas. Right? Yeah, I guess it might be depend on the parts of the world you're in. It might be a little easier, those, but they're two very large pizzas. Let's put it maybe from Costco or something. So we've got that. But to your question about one way, two way doors, one of the leadership. Oh, prin- oh please don't oh. rush. Go right. Continue with the four pillars. This isn't we, we, let's go a little bit deeper there. Please. continue. Okay. So the idea with the organization, as I mentioned, is we really want teams to take ownership of what they built. And a lot of companies, really traditionally, maybe some people develop the technology and the software, and then they throw it over a wall and the operations people have to fix it. Like your house, right? You built your house and maybe they screwed up in different places, but then you have to hire somebody else to come figure out what the heck happened and fix it. But imagine if whoever built your house, that contractor was on call for as long as you own the house to come fix whatever they screwed up. Wow. And so that's the idea of the two pizza teams. So if I created some code, I put it out there. Now we go through a pretty rigorous process, but there's always going to be bugs. So I then also serve on tier two, tier three support on a regular basis to fix the stuff I created. And I also get to go talk to customers directly and go, what do you like? What do you not like? What's great? What sucks? What would you like to see in the future? And so there's real connection and ownership of what you've created, as well as customer obsession and earning trust by being really connected with what customers need or want. And so that's the beauty of the two pizza team idea. And then two pizza teams report to what we call a single threaded leader. And again, technology, we're a little sort of a nerdy company, but this idea of they basically own everything that they're trying to create. And they don't say, well, I just own maybe the development. I don't own the operations or whatever. If you own maybe a particular product or a set of services, you are the single threaded leader responsible for really making that business successful and the product successful. So you'll have developer, you may also have marketing, you may have a different sort of product management. You'll have all these different roles that are part of your purview because at the end of the day, the buck stops here. And so people know exactly where the buck stops because you don't want to be passing it around. And that's sort of idea. And if a product or service grows in size, instead of making the team size larger, we'll add another two pizza team. And we'll basically break up the components of it so that so I worked with Aurora database, right? I did that for quite a few years. If maybe it expands and we add a new feature, global replication, instead of just adding more people into the general team, we'll have a separate team that will take over that particular set functionality so that they can own that. And so that idea really allows us to be able to, again, have each team really own what they build and also be agile at the same time. What are your thoughts of the two pizza company? The two pizza company actually is really every startup, right? Maybe one pizza company, maybe one, one cup of water company. So the reason we came up with this two pizza team idea is because we wanted to keep a startup feel and sense of making things happen quickly. And so if you only have 10 people in your startup, well, it's actually a really good number, right? Because you're all very much owning what you're building. The buck really stops with you because there's no one else to go to. The challenge is when you become a hundred person, thousand person, a million person company to be able to keep that sense of innovation, entrepreneurship and startup feeling while having massive numbers. And so this is a way of being able to do that. Okay. Now let's go to the one door, two door. Yes. What does that mean? So this goes along with one of our leadership principles, which is bias for action. 
And the idea of speed matters in business, right? You need to make decisions quickly sometimes. Otherwise, somebody beat you to it or you missed an opportunity or have dissatisfied customers. And so what we found is that there's this mental model that helps us be able to make both high quality decisions as well as high velocity decisions. And so high quality means you really need to think long and hard because the ramifications are pretty galactic. And so we would call those a one-way door because you walk through, the door closed, it's locked and you can't go back out. So you better decide if you really want to be in that room. Whereas a two-way door means you go through, you try it out. If you don't like it, doesn't work out, walk right back out. It's fully reversible. So one-way door is irreversible. Two-way door is reversible. And what we found is that a lot of companies think of all their decisions as one-way doors. And so it really slows down their innovation. They're like, okay, we got to debate. We got to talk. They talk about it for six months, but then the opportunity is really gone. So how can you actually make really quality decisions when it truly is a one-way door versus make very quick decisions when it's a two-way door? And that is by separating it out at the very beginning. So before any decision, you actually have to have a meta decision. Is this a reversible or an irreversible? So for example, building a data center in a new city, that's irreversible. Once you spend all that money to do it, you're not not going back on that. So that's going to take months or years of planning, lots and lots of documents and all that. It makes sense. Let's say we want to offer a new feature on the mobile app. That's totally a two-way door, right? So we can try it out. We can even try it out with a limited population living in a particular geography or certain set of customers and see if it works and then expand that as it's successful or it's not, right? And so realizing that makes a big difference. So one of the things we actually say is if you have a two-way door decision and you are 60 to 70% sure it's going to work, well, you've already waited too long. You should have been through that door a while back. Go for it. It does help us be really innovative because we get to make lots and lots of great decisions over here and try them out and experiment while also lowering the cost of failure for like really galactic type of decisions. Okay, now going back, the whole six-page idea, you actually did one of these six pages, correct? That is correct. Tell us about it. The last two years, we've had this thing that you may have heard of. It's called the pandemic. And we're obviously all going through it, right? Like (laughs) Getting in the best shape of our lives. (laughs) Something like that. Basically, I've been very interested in emotional intelligence for decades, right? While I was uh, an evangelist, I actually created a program for my congregation. This is, gosh, 15 years ago. And I trained thousands of people in it. I saw it had incredibly great benefit for everybody, everyone from C-level executives to brand new people in the workforce to kids in college. And so I'm very passionate about it. And that's because I needed to develop it in my own life. Like I grew up with very low emotional intelligence. Let's just say no one would have ever accused me of having any for the first 20 years of my life. I was working only on the cognitive side because I didn't have many friends. I had a lot of time to study for the SAT. The fact is I pushed all that. And then when I got married, my wife really insisted that I grow in my emotional connection skills. Go figure, right? She's like, I really want you to be more of a human than a Vulcan. So let's work on this. And she really helped me a lot. And then I found that there's this entire field of research and skills. And Daniel Goleman obviously is a big luminary in that field. So I read his books, read a lot of others, got a lot of coaching, helped me a ton. And then I started sharing with others. So fast forward, I bring it to Oracle, train several thousand people there. And then at AWS, I also started teaching people about emotional intelligence. Remember what I said earlier, linchpin? I thought this is an area where I could actually be a linchpin because I noticed that no one talked about it. We had a lot of innovation, a lot of all the leadership principles, but when it came to 
emotionally understanding yourself and others is really basically like a void. And so I thought, let me start sharing and teaching people about how this can help them be successful and help their customers be more successful and help people around them. People loved it. So I started giving talks. I remember I, I submitted my talk for our sales kickoff back in 2019. And by, by on some whim, and some senior leader actually said, sure, we'll let this guy talk about this weird thing called emotional intelligence. Like it was totally off the beaten path of all the other stuff that we generally talk about. And they said, let's give you like a room of 185 people and see if anybody shows up to this strange topic. Well, the day before my talk, the organizers call me up in a huff and say, hey, we got a problem. So many people tapped on your session and want to go. We have to move you to a bigger room. So they put me in a room for a thousand people and it became standing room only. They literally turned people away at the door because so many people wanted to come attend it. And it wound up being the highest rated breakout session of the entire event. And so that basically made me and lots more leaders understand and realize this is truly a resonant topic that people are interested in. So I'll bring the pandemic into it. Then the pandemic happens. And suddenly, everyone is increased in their amount of stress. Uh, their work-life balance is completely out of whack. Managers suddenly need to be more empathetic than they ever imagined they would have to be. Before, it's just giving you assignments on how to create your code and check it in or hit your sales numbers. Now it's like, I'm falling apart because I'm trying to homeschool three kids or my mother might die or all sorts of things are happening. And so suddenly, the entire sort of, I think, corporate world Welcome to the fact that the human element cannot be separated from the career and professional element. And as I began giving talks and did more and more of them, more and more people came to me and said, I'd like to join your initiative, call it the EQ at Amazon initiative. And so we formed this group of several hundred, what I call EQ champions that are across all of Amazon, across all geographies globally, who helped me to spread the word. We practice, we grow in, and we share emotional intelligence skills. And so over the past two and a half, three years, we've actually delivered emotional intelligence training to over 120,000 Amazonians who've heard our keynote talk, deeper trainings, talks about resilience and stress management and empathy and self-awareness and inclusion and diversity. We've talked about a lot of really relevant topics. And so fast forward to a few months ago, I said, I've been doing this off the side of my desk. I've been actually been the global strategist for Aurora Database. I would like to do this full time. So I wrote a narrative. I submitted it to my vice president and he said, heck yeah, let's do it. And so he said, how many people do you want? How many do you need? We got a certain amount of headcount, hired my team, we're off to the races. So it's called the EPIC Leadership Program. And it stands for Leaders Who Lead with Empathy, Purpose, Inspiration, and Connection. EPIC. And it essentially is an emotionally and socially intelligent leader who can lead their team towards sustainable high performance and long-term success, both professionally and personally. Who wouldn't want to work for a leader like that? And so that's the idea of being able to help elevate the emotional intelligence of all of our leaders, as well as the people who are not necessarily people managers, but we consider them leaders because at Amazon, we consider everybody a leader. So really, we're trying to impact over a million people at Amazon with the program and the world at large, actually. So the idea is that whatever we create, we can also share with our customers, share with the world, and somehow really try to elevate the awareness of this whole side that most people don't really get an education on. You didn't get a whole PhD, go to school for like 25 years and never get a single course on emotional intelligence. And the goal is to be able to share this because it can have such incredible benefit on really anybody. Speaking of sharing 
and sharing this content with our listeners and our audience. Most of our listeners, founders of companies, or they work with founders of companies. How does a founder develop that mental, I want to say strength to go through the stresses that are involved with starting a company? Yeah. Any techniques, any suggestions you could share? Yeah, there are many, but I'll sort of distill down a few things. I've done a lot of talks for founders and entrepreneurs, and it's really interesting because Paul Graham, obviously we all know who he is, founder of Y Combinator, he wrote a really interesting article a few years ago. And his whole point was, what makes a successful founder? And his comment was, it's the myth in the valley that it's about intelligence and smarts. And he said, of course, it's important, but once you're smart enough, it's not a differential. A lot of these people are smart enough. But after that, the key is determination. It's resilience. It's what Angela Duckworth might call grit, mental toughness, a lot of different names. But the whole point is you keep on going, even though times are really hard. You bounce back after setbacks. You don't get distracted and go off, do something else. And so that is squarely in the realm of emotional intelligence. Determination and all these things is not a cognitive skill. It is an emotional skill. Because you feel anxious, you feel discouraged, you feel angry, you feel afraid, and those things cause you to either give up or keep going. So with that context, one of the things that I found is that managing your internal state and especially unpleasant emotions and stress are one of the key factors to being able to do that. And so foundationally, it's just kind of aware of what you're actually experiencing. A lot of people don't even know what's going on inside. And so their emotions wind up hijacking them and working against them rather than for them. It's interesting, Brene Brown, which obviously a lot of people have probably heard of, she did research and found that the average person can name three emotions, happy, sad, and pissed off, the thing she said, AKA angry. And she's like, oh my goodness, that is not very helpful, right? Because there's so many other ones. And research has found that the more you can actually identify your emotions, the healthier you're going to be from an internal perspective, right? You're basically going to go to the doctor less, you're hospitalized less, and you're also less prone to alcoholism and aggressive behavior. It's kind of wild. So just even learning how to identify, my, my stomach is tight, you know, I'm, I have sweaty palms, my heart is palpitating, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling nervous, I'm feeling afraid, or I'm feeling angry, or I'm feeling sad. Or I'm feeling elated or I'm feeling happy. Like just naming it actually gives you some power over it. And what most people do is they ignore it. And so it basically does weird things to them as they're trying to either make a pitch or be creative or figure out how to have a conversation with someone. So that's fundamentally. One thing I will say, probably the single most popular technique that I've taught across Amazon is simply just breathing. A lot of people don't realize mindfulness, meditation, think of it sort of an Eastern Buddhism type thing. But there's actually a very, very physiological impact you can have if you breathe. In the Western world, we actually don't think of breathing as anything we kind of leverage. We just kind of do it. But there's a lot of science. And I share this thing that the Navy SEALs actually use. It's called box breathing. And essentially, it means you breathe in for a four count, you hold it for a four count, you breathe out for a four count, and you keep it out for a core count. That's it. You do it for like a couple of minutes and it has a quantifiable impact on your body state, actually. That's why the Navy SEALs use it. It's not, they're not Buddhists. They're actually using it to be able to help calm themselves and think more clearly when bullets are literally flying around them. So I teach that. I actually take people through it for a couple of minutes and I say, how do you feel? And people are like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. I feel more relaxed. I feel more clear-minded. I feel more calm. 
And it's because that breathing pattern essentially activates what's called your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's your rest and digest system. It basically reduces your heart rate, your blood pressure, downregulates really intense emotions. And so if you're feeling amped up and you're feeling really afraid and you're feeling really angry, one of the most powerful things you can do is just take a moment, close your eyes, breathe, do a box breath for a minute or two, guarantee it makes a huge difference. And so that's been one of the techniques that I've taught and people use it all the time, right? Before they go to a stressful meeting, but when they're trying to go to sleep at night, when they start their day, before having a tough conversation or a big sales call or a big pitch before talking to their teenage. There's a lot of scenarios where you may want to be in a calmer, more clear-minded state. So those just kind of two simple things that I talk about. I was just trying to practice the box breathing as you're giving the answer there. So. <laughs> yeah, try it. I really recommend if you're listening, just close your eyes and do it for a couple of minutes and then ask yourself, how did that feel? Just humor me. If you don't like it, don't ever do it again, but you may find it really powerful. I've had people basically say, I looked at my Apple watch and my heart rate literally did go down. And that's because there's something physiologically happening. And you've probably had your grandma or an aunt or uncle or parents say, if you're really angry, count to 10 or take some deep breaths. That's actually good advice from a neuroscience point of view. And with that, I mean, we're about running out of time. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Any other key takeaways, anything, any last words, advice before we wrap it up? Yeah. One of the things that it's really important to, to remember is that everything in life happens because of relationships, whether it's personal or it's professional. And if you read the analyses of the most successful founders and people in the Valley or anywhere, there tends to be an over-indexing in the news on the technology. But the reality is it's about relationships. It's about who and the trust you've built. There's some famous research done by Daniel Kahneman, right? Found that people will essentially work with and buy from people they like and trust. And so the parting words I'd have is, how likable are you? How trustworthy are you? Right? Now, you can probably name some successful people that aren't very likable <laughs> or others that have scammed people and aren't trustworthy. When you really think about the overarching example, it's people who are trustworthy and they demonstrate that. And there's a sense of affinity, a sense of likability. And, and why do people like people? A lot of it's because they're interested in them. If I'm interested in you, if I listen to you, if I have empathy and I actually value what you think and feel, then you're going to like me because I genuinely am there to try to understand and support. And so I just say that as a powerful thing. And to bring it back to the Amazon idea, the reality is most people really like Amazon because we get you your packages on time. You order it. It shows up. We try to charge you low prices. We try to make it great selection. We try to make it as convenient as possible. So people really like the brand and people like the interaction. It's funny, I just did a talk on Amazon's innovation with a group of leaders from Japan, actually just before this podcast. And I said, how many of us here are Amazon Prime members? And they literally all raised their hand. <laughs> I said, don't worry, got to They all laughed. It was hilarious. And so it's this idea of then they're enthusiastically raised their hand, right? Like, I love the fact that you've given me this. So I say that because really think about building those relationships, really think about earning trust, and really think about understanding what your customers truly want and need. If you do that, you're definitely going to have a higher chance of success.
And Rich, we're about to wrap up, but is there anything you want to add to any of the previous questions or any additional information before we close this chapter of the Silicon Valley podcast? Yeah. The one thing I'd say is I really want to encourage people to look at developing your emotional intelligence skills just as much as you focus on the cognitive side or learning new technology or figuring out NFTs and crypto, whatever it may be. Those are important, but you're very likely smart enough. And so keep on learning the data and the information, but really work on this other side can make an outsized difference in your life. I actually have a website. It's richardhua.co where it's pretty basic, but it's got a lot of great resources like book recommendations, TED Talks, articles that will allow you to begin on that journey. Highly recommend Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence. Uh, Mark Brackett has a great book called Permission to Feel. Travis Bradbury has one called EQ 2.0. Any of those three are actually great ways to start off on that journey. And I guarantee you, if you work on this, you will find and really outsized benefit to you and to the people around you, both professionally and personally in your life. So highly recommend it. One of the most enriching and powerful things that I believe people can do for themselves and for the people around them. Fantastic. And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Check out our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or any of the podcast platforms, please give us very high review and share with your friends. It encourages us to create more content. And we're going to have all of Rich's contact information in the show notes. So check us out there. And for myself, if you're working with or interested in working with an investment banker for either an acquisition, for a merger, or possibly raise growth capital or secondaries, connect with me. My contact's in the show notes. Find me on LinkedIn. Talk to me. And with that, Rich, I got to thank you. And I got to thank Sam Wong for the introduction for coming today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.